0: Thank you so much. So, um, before I start with my presentation, I just want to just remind us all that we often think of tech as something new in activism today. But throughout history, there's always been tech developments that have had an impact on activism. I want to do one example. In South Africa, back in the days of apartheid, when printing technology became available, suddenly people could put up posters and let others know about meetings that were going on. We didn't call them print or poster activists, we recognize that there's a piece of tech that is now available that can enable certain things. And I'd also like to just, we often use the distinction of real life and online, but we know that online has had real world impact whether it's through safety violations or whether it's through major wins that have been made so i just want to point out that this distinction is not helpful online is real life the difference would be saying something like in person or not in person so again when we get back to tech we should ask is it helping us fight back or reinforcing inequality we know that we live in a world of a lot of divisions we know that we live in an anti-black world we live in a patriarchal world. We live in a very really sexist world. And we, often what is assumed to be a normal human being would be a heterosexual white man who's able-bodied. Anything that does not fit within that paradigm is often othered. And we often think that tech is neutral, that it just happens in a vacuum, that it's not influenced by these factors. And there's a lot of evidence that shows us otherwise. I want us to think about Facebook as an example of this, right? We saw there was a huge time when um, revenge porn became a thing in different countries and photos of women were released by their former lovers and so on. And different pages were started where women, photographs of women were leaked on these pages. In many countries, people struggled <laughs> to get these photos removed. But on the other hand, photos that were put up by women who were breastfeeding their kids, Facebook found that they violated their policies. So what this in essence said is that Facebook has no problem with people illegally releasing nude photos of you, but has a problem of you taking, as a woman, taking control of your body and showing us something as natural as breastfeeding. And then I also want to talk about um, the Black Lives Matter movement. We also saw in the U.S., after one of the more recent cop killings, Son of Baldwin, who's a popular social commentator, put up a post that was grieving, very beautiful poem, that was grieving for black people who have died at the hands of police officers. Facebook removed the post. And we gradually see where black people respond to racism Facebook is much more likely to remove that, than remove the posts of people making racist comments, people who supported the cop killings and all of that. But there was a huge mobilization around this post, and Facebook put it back on. But the difficulty with that is when it's not high-profile situations, it's often, it gets lost and people don't know what are the channels to go through. And we also saw this when Facebook put in place its real name policy. It didn't take into account some people who were, who are members of the LGBTI communities in countries where it's illegal to be part of that. And also in San Francisco, there were a couple of, there was cases of drag queens who were hiding their real identities and Facebook wanted to remove their accounts. And it became a huge storm because Facebook should also recognize that because of the different circumstances, some of us do have to hide our identities, whether we are women running away from domestic violence, abuse of partners, but still want to keep in touch with our families. There should be rules that allow us to go forth with certain identities. And I've just brought these examples just to show us that these things aren't neutral. They can be used in different ways. So, moving on to the campaigning world, the world of digital activism. A lot of the time, we've seen that the owners of digital activism tools don't look like me. They are not people from the global majority world. They, are, they tend to be white, they tend to be men, they tend to be heterosexuals, who fit within a very heteronormative way of what society is supposed to look like. And the problem with this is that those most affected by injustice are often not these people. (laughs) So you have people who are not affected by injustice with disproportionate control over the means which we have to counter what's going on. And it also means that with online petition platforms, We've seen them being used to serve the interests of corporations and middle class issues, such as rhino conservation, because it's a match of access, it's a match of language distribution, and so on. So you also see where corporates and the right-wing, anti-poor, and anti-social justice groups can also pay people to run certain petitions or sell them data so that their petitions can grow. And what we have is what we call astroturfing. you know, people come in, pay, and blast it out. And we know that a lot of the right-wing anti-poor groups do have a lot of funds available for this. And this is a huge problem in a country such as ours, South Africa, where we have the double whammy of colonialism and apartheid. And we also know that the limitations of the online world, one of the biggest barriers to accessing data, online data services, is actually not even data cost, it's English literacy most of the information that's available is only available in English so those most affected by injustice can't take action on issues affecting their lives. So I'm from a place in the northwest province, an informal settlement called Roygrond. Once upon a time I had a phone given to me At the time, we were facing eviction, and suddenly I had a phone, had access to the internet, and could connect with others. Told the story, it got media attention, but we connected with others in such a way that we were no longer the small community in the middle of nowhere. We had mass support. And eventually, the eviction was rescinded. But I also recognized that my ability to use this medium was because I could understand English, and therefore draw on information and send out certain things. Apart from that, we also deployed SMS. There was a time when the municipality was coming around and I SMS people in the neighboring communities to block their roads to ensure that during our protests, the police couldn't reach us. Anyway, it went well, eviction rescinded. But that got me thinking, what does it look like to create a campaigning organization that uses the power of mobile technology and online technology in ways that don't reinforce the same power dynamics that means those who can understand English, that means those who have access to certain devices, are the only ones who can use these tools. And that was the birth of Amanda.Mobi. So to date we've had a, Amanda.Mobi we're quite clear. South Africa is a black-majority country, and the majority of those are black women. And black women are disproportionately burdened with whatever goes wrong in society because we make up the primary caregivers in the majority of households. And for us, it was a way, how do we ensure that those most affected by injustice can take action on issues affecting their lives? So it's no longer a case of someone with a flushing toilet being the one who comes to tell you about how bad it is not to have a flushing toilet when that's your daily reality. And so we have the online, we run our campaigns that run in multilingual South African languages and we run both online and on um, mobile devices. We use SMS and what is called the Please Call Me in South Africa and then we also use WhatsApp. In the past, we used to use Mixit, which was a South African-based social network, which collapsed. Because for us, it's a lot about find people where they are, don't move them somewhere else. Find people where, meet them where they are, but you're always looking forward to where they're moving to. Because that's mobile tech, it's volatile. What's working today might not work tomorrow. To date we've had over 40,000 people who've taken action on issues across campaigns, these have ranged on issues around the use of the R5 assault rifle in the removal of it, for policing protests, to supporting the families affected by the Americana massacre and so on. One of the important things for us is that black lives are not single-issue lives. You always have a series of things that are going on at any given point in time in an oppressed person's life. So you should be able to respond to that, both rapidly and in a long-term sense. One of our more successful campaigns was we are currently going to migrate from analog, and what this required for people to sort be kept on television, there's going to be something distributed called the set-top box. And at the time when information was being given about this, the public consultation was only running via online or you could send a fax and it was all the information was available only in English. So we worked with a partner, the SOS Coalition, and got people to tell why people should be subsidised for these set-top boxes because the cost was out of reach for many people. For the first time you had over 4,500 people give back feedback in their own mm-hmm. languages about why they should be subsidised on this. And it's just one of the many ways that we don't think of, even in the public consultation process, how people get shut out. So just also in terms of the, our thinking about digital campaigning, right, we also see it as it's not just about adding your name to a set of demands. We've developed tools for organizing events, meeting with decision makers, and other tools for amplifying whatever people are doing at any given time. In 2012, we had a massacre here in South Africa during a strike for a living wage by some miners. In the course of one week, 44 people were killed, 34 in the same day by our police forces. And there was an inquiry into this. Last year, we mobilized over 70 of our members to host commemoration events across the country. So this is just some of what people can do beyond. Because we see it as, not everybody gets every social justice issues. How are your campaigns telling a story that say to someone who's progressive on race, join us on a fight with the LGBTI community because all these different oppressions are interlinked with each other. So we we think of campaigns as climbing up a ladder of engagement where people first take one action and move on to different, deeper, meaningful actions as well. And, just in closing, some of the practical advice I would give, right, is the use of homegrown platforms, which are founded in your country. Make sure the digital platform is not going to sell people's data. That is very, very important. We do not want people profiting from people's data. We also believe in using platforms that believe in human rights values and not in supporting vested interests, particularly when it comes to corporations. And working with organizations committed to long-term victories, not short-term viral campaigns. We also recognize as Amartha.movi, we are not a research institute. Our capacity is to mobilise people in numbers, but what are these? What is this mobilisation meaning in terms of systemic change? What is the bigger thing? And in, so, in thinking about that, it means we look for always very really values-aligned partners with whom we work, who would provide the research capacity or the expertise on certain issues. And we should also be very careful with working with international groups which are top-down and don't build local power and have no interest in local context. Because in a country like ours, like many others, in a deeply racist, patriarchal society, it's very unfortunate to work with people who come in and then come reinforce these very same inequalities.